Well, good morning, everyone. Great to see you all today. If you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapters 19 and 20 this morning, two whole chapters. And before we get started, um, let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for the gift of your word and the opportunity to open it, to take, to read, to feed on your word. I pray that you would open our hearts to hear you speak this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when was the last time that you heard a uh, sermon about trees? Anyone? Probably not a whole lot, right? Uh, Well, uh, look with me here at Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 19. Moses says, when you besiege a city for a long time, making war against it in order to take it, you shall not destroy its trees by wielding an axe against them. You may eat from them, but you shall not cut them down. Are the trees in the field human that they should be besieged by you? Crazy, right? Now, I don't think that Moses was in any sense like an environmentalist and that's clearly something going on here that's more than just a plea to protect trees. In fact, there's an underlying principle that I think helps give shape to the rest of the commands that we're going to read about in these two chapters, chapters 19 and 20. And I think the principle that God is trying to tell his people is this, don't ruin the rest that I am going to give you. Don't ruin your rest. That's the principle that he's laying out for us today in these two chapters. Think about it. A repeated refrain throughout the people's long journey from Egypt all the way into the promised land has been God's promise to bring the people to a land of their own, a land where they would be able to live in cities that they didn't build and and enjoy the fruit of vineyards that they didn't plant, a land flowing with milk and honey, a place where God's provision would be manifest in abundance. And the command here is very explicit. As you work to conquer and inhabit the land, don't get carried away and destroy the very blessings I've set apart for you. But really, it goes much deeper than that. The fruit trees represented God's provision for his people. They, they, they were an integral part of the land that was to be their place of rest. And so to destroy these trees would cause more than just an agricultural or even an ecological challenge or problem for them. To destroy these trees would create a theological problem as well because they would disrupt the rest that God had promised and indeed assured his people. So, this morning, as we look at chapters 19 and 20, we're going to explore three ways in which the Israelites threatened to ruin God's rest. And then we're going to see three ways in which we, in contrast, can embrace that rest instead. So, one of the first ways that the people of Israel might ruin their promised rest was by letting anger run rampant. 
We already know right from the Ten Commandments that murder is forbidden. But here in chapter 19, Moses goes into far more detail explaining the reason why. So the context here, big picture in chapter 19, is a call to establish three cities of refuge after they've conquered and entered into the Promised Land. So what was a city of refuge? Well, Moses gives a great example here in verses 4 through 6. Basically, imagine you're out in a forest with your buddy and you're chopping wood. I, I don't, I'm not like a lumberjack. I don't know if you're doing this or this. But either way, you're swinging an axe around um, and the axe head comes flying off, hits your friend and kills him instantly. Now, obviously, you didn't intend for this to happen. It's the last thing on your mind. You're horrified, appalled, devastated. But now what happens? Innocent blood has been shed. What will other people think? How will your friend's family now respond? Well, the chances are really high that your friend's family is not going to take this news very well. In fact, in their grief and their anguish, their anger, they may feel that justice demands your death. And at this time and in this culture, it would be quite likely that they would send someone from their family to kill you, to track you down and kill you. Now, this, this hardly seems fair or just, right? I, like I haven't even had a chance to explain myself. I didn't mean for this to happen. It was an accident. But now what? Well, enter the city of refuge. So in this scenario that the Moses has just given you, um, you could flee to a city of refuge for help. And once within that city limits, you would be protected from any kind of vigilante justice. Sort of like uh, when you're playing tag with your friends as kids, right? You can run to mom and dad. It's like they're base. Like, I'm on base. You can't get me. Except for little kids, it's just a game. And for the person who committed manslaughter, obviously the stakes were a little bit higher. This was a matter of life and death. But if they could get to the city of refuge, then they were guaranteed safety until the facts could be sorted out and guilt determined. So in this way, the city of refuge became like a, a safety mechanism, or right? like a handbrake on the quest for revenge. So as uh, Moses notes in verses 11 through 13, if after uh, an investigation it turned out that this was not actually an accident at all, but a case of premeditated murder, like, hey, let's go out in the woods and chop down some, uh, help me chop down some, some, some lumber out here, and uh, you're all the while intending to kill somebody then the guilty person, according to Moses, would then be removed from the city of refuge and executed. So in that way, the city of refuge, it couldn't be misused as a place to sort of excuse bad behavior or illegal activity where you could run to to, to sort of escape punishment for your crimes. Rather, it was a way to ensure that justice prevailed. Now, Moses has already covered much of this in far more detail, actually, in Numbers 35. You can read all the various ins and outs in, in Numbers chapter 35. So why bring it up again here? 
Well, I think Moses' concern has far more to do with the impact this would have on the land and consequently on their rest. So look with me at the text. If you look at a verse 1, the land, chapter 19, verse 1, the land frames these entire chapters from beginning to end three times in the first three verses. Moses reminds the people, this land is yours to possess. I'm giving you this land. I'm giving you this land. I'm giving you this land over and over and over again. And here's why this is so important. Look at verse 10. The cities of refuge are so vital because without them, the person who unintentionally killed someone might be chased down and killed by an angry mob or an angry relative out for revenge. And this killing, understandable as it may seem, would nevertheless be illegal, immoral, and against the will of God. It would be considered the taking of an innocent life. So now there would be two dead people. The, the, the first person who was killed accidentally in the forest, and now a second person slayed uh, by the person seeking vengeance. Catastrophe piled upon catastrophe. And so God says, establish cities of refuge, lest innocent blood be shed in your, in the, in your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, and the guilt of bloodshed be upon you. So yeah, the the cities of refuge, they they have a legal function within their society, right? That's helpful. But Moses, I think he's pushing pushing a little bit deeper here because he says, look, the land, it's special. There's something special about this land. It's consecrated. It's set apart. It's not just any old place in the world where they happen to be. It's the place given by God to his people, and therefore also the place where God is, he wants to come and dwell with them, right? Where they're going to live under his reign and his rule. And so for innocent blood to be shed on that land, it would bring guilt to all the people, disrupting their fellowship with God. So this is why Moses tells the people that someone who's convicted of premeditated murder is to be executed. Verse 13, why? To purge the innocent blood from Israel so so that it may be well with you. What strikes me most about this entire section is the way in which the lives of the people of God are intimately connected with each other and with the land and with God which means sin doesn't just impact one person or or two people, like the two people in the forest, right? It impacts the entire community. It interferes with their connection with this land of blessing and rest that God has given to them. And it ruptures, most importantly, their relationship with God. We see this because the required punishments are intended to cleanse the entire community. He says, rid the entire land of this innocent blood that's been shed. You know, the promised land, it was meant to be a place of rest. Not meaning like the end of all work, like we just get to sit down in our easy chairs. But resting in the presence of God. 
And murder would be a hindrance to their experience of that rest. And the cities of refuge therefore provided a way to mitigate the, 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 the uh, destructive forces of vengeance and violence and thereby allow the community to experience God's presence among them in the place that he was giving them to enjoy. Now for us today, the land is, is no longer the same focal point of the blessings of God. Christ is, right? Our, and our promised rest is no longer aimed at a specific geographical location here and now. It's directed towards our presence with our Savior, and looking ahead to our presence with God in the new heavens and the new earth one day in the future. And so in one sense, Christ fulfills completely the principle behind these cities of refuge, right? Because we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're all face God's righteous judgment. The sentence we deserve is death, and yet when we run to Christ, we find refuge and safety. But this is where we find that Christ is, is really actually so much more because whereas the cities of refuge simply provided a means for justice to be administered safely and fairly, Christ actually pays that punishment that we deserve. Right? He offers himself in our place, providing the way for the guilt to be cleansed, for us to be able to dwell in peace with God and with each other as a result. But that rest can still be ruptured as a result of unbridled anger. And in all kinds of contexts, but especially, I'm thinking this morning, in our homes. Right? The, the concept of a city of refuge encourages us to press pause on our anger, even in the most heated of moments. I mean, how many times have you blown it with your spouse or with your kids or kids with your parents, all because you didn't have all the facts in the moment. You thought you knew what had happened, but it turned out you didn't. Look, the world is hard enough as it is, right? Our homes of all places should be the safest spaces imaginable, where we think and assume the best of each other, where we're quick to forgive minor offenses and slow to anger, where we pause long enough to listen and make the effort to truly understand what we're saying to each other, where we resist the temptation to, to run to conclusions, where we commit to never bearing false witness, our homes, they should be the one place where revenge is never spoken of. A place of justice and mercy and grace. In short, what if this year we committed to making our homes outposts of God's grace, where we all might come to experience the kind of rest that Christ promises us in Matthew 11? So don't let anger ruin your rest in Christ and in your homes. Well, a second way the people of God might uh, ruin their promised rest in the land was by letting fear consume them. Now, the context here, it shifts 
from chapter 19 to chapter 20, it shifts from laws about murder and manslaughter and false witnesses to issues concerning the conquest of the land. Note that emphasis on land once again. So as we read in chapter 20, verse 1, When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now remember how I said at the beginning of the sermon that uh, the command about not cutting down the fruit trees was kind of like a central theme through these two chapters. Now I know there are no fruit trees mentioned right here in, in this beginning verses in chapter 20, but, but walk with me here for a moment. When the people first came out of Egypt and approached the promised land and prepared to enter it, what happened? Numbers 13, right? They sent spies ahead of them, and they go into the land. And what do they see? What do they find? They see big cities and giants, and they see abundant provision, pomegranates, figs, dates, almonds, grapes, huge clusters of grapes, right? But then what happens? They let fear consume them. And instead of advancing, they retreat in fear, in panic, in doubt, in dread, uncertain of God's ability to fight for them, to conquer the land, unconvinced of God's desire to to just give them all this blessing and abundance. And so, as a result, that generation failed to enter God's promise rests. Let's skip ahead 40 years. And now we have a new generation standing on the border of the promised land, once again facing exactly the same choice as their parents and grandparents did, right? Will they choose faith or fear? Will they choose rebellion or rest? It's like God is saying to them, I rescued you from the most oppressive slavery imaginable. I carried you through the desert as a father carries his own son. And now I'm ready to go before you, to fight for you, to give you this land of promise, this place of rest, this place of abundance and plenty. And God says to them, look, this abundance, this rest, this peace, All that waits for you just across the river. Now, will you trust me? It's a question that just hangs in the air for God's people. Will you trust him? As he leads you down roads that you thought you would never take or into situations that you never thought you could handle, will you trust him? That his provision, no, his presence is enough. That's all you need. And then, as if to emphasize the point, Moses gives some really kind of crazy outlandish instructions to them as they kind of gather their military forces to conquer the land. Rather than scrambling, hey, we've got to rustle up every last available man. Uh, to fight for our army. He gives three specific groups of people who they should send home instead. So look at, starting in verse 5, any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it, go home, 
Any man who's planted a vineyard and not yet enjoyed the fruit of that, that vineyard, go home. Any man who has been betrothed to wife and has not yet consummated that marriage, go home. Do you see how closely these exemptions are tied to their possession of the land, homes, vineyards, marriage, family? These are core blessings in the lives of the people of Israel. They're not to be looked down on or or passed over or ignored. In fact, they represent part of the very reason that God's giving them this land, right? To enable them to finally fulfill that creation mandate, to, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to have dominion over it, to work it. Tending for the creation, making it bring forth fruit in its season, right? But this is more than just a fundamental, uh, 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 an affirmation of the fundamental goodness of, of marriage and family. These exemptions point once again to the picture of God's rest. Remember, in, Israel, in uh, Egypt, the people trapped in slavery, Pharaoh specifically tried to prevent them from multiplying and fill, filling the earth, even going so far as to, to murder their children. So rest is what's on offer here, meaning the ability to rest in and enjoy God's presence in God's place. And it's so important to God that he doesn't want anyone to miss out on those blessings. And so he graciously provides these, this freedom for young men to withdraw from military service, lest they miss out on the fundamental blessings promised them. Which is really, it's just, it's just incredible. But what's the main thing that will undermine their ability to experience this rest? It's fear. Look at the final exemption for military service. He says, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. Fear ripped the promised rest out of the hands of the first generation as they attempted to enter the land. And the key question Moses puts to the people now is will fear have the last word once again? You know, we've talked a lot in this series about fear, but we keep talking about it because fear doesn't just like evaporate overnight, like, oh, I heard a sermon about fear today, and now I'm no longer afraid. Right? Fears and concerns, they persist in our lives about our children or our grandchildren or our family or our health or our finances or our work or our house or the world or whatever it is. This side of heaven, I doubt, will ever get to a place where we finally address all our fears. This world is just too broken. The, the future is just too uncertain. But... We do have a choice as to what we will do with that fear. So I personally, I've not had much luck just telling myself, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. But what does help 
is when I remind myself over and over again of all the ways in which God has been with me and provided for me and strengthened me and blessed me and cared for me in the past, even through times of suffering, even through times of trial, even in moments when everything fell apart, in moments of grief and sorrow and heartache, God was always there. And so much of the Exodus narrative is devoted to reminding the people over and over again of God's goodness to them in the past as an encouragement to them to keep trusting him into the future. Exodus 15 that we just read uh, before the sermon, rehearsing everything that God has done and then looking ahead to God's promise. As I defeated Pharaoh and the Egyptians, so I will defeat your enemies as you enter into the promised land. Earlier this week, as I was preparing for this sermon in my uh, Bible reading, I I was reading Psalm 105, which is very similar. And and these verses in particular struck me, and I sort of took a photo of them on my Bible and texted everyone on our family chat, because they were just so powerful. So I'm sharing them with you today. This is from Psalm 105, which says, Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles, and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. That right there is your pathway out of fear. Remembering the wondrous works that God has done, seeking his strength and his presence continually in whatever circumstance you find yourself. Don't let fear ruin the rest that God is offering you. So, as we move to our third section here, the first way that the people of God might ruin their rest was by allowing anger to to, to boil over into vengeance and even murder. And the second way that the people might ruin their rest was by letting fear consume them once again. But the third and the final way that the people of God might ruin their rest was by overlooking sin and idolatry in their own lives and in their community. And before we get into our text, I do have a a confession uh, to make. Um, I'm not very good at cleaning. Just not my spiritual gift. Um, I mean, if I'm under the gun and I have a lot of very direct supervision, then sure, perfect. (laughs) I will clean like a madman. But honestly, cleaning just generally reveals a lot of character flaws in me. (laughs) So uh, I'll vacuum the bulk of the room but getting under the table, now I've got to pull all the chairs out, and then I've got to put them all back again. It's like, yeah, you know, that's good enough. <laughs> no one's going to look under there anyway. Or I'll fold, this is my wife's favorite, I'll fold and put away all my clothes and leave all the other clothes in the bin or on the bed, right? Who does that? Apparently I do that. Um, but here's the thing. Look, we talk all the time 
in Christian circles about sin and idolatry, right? You know it's a good Bible study if we've said, oh, we must flee from sin and resist idolatry in our lives. Like, oh, yes, we must do that. And we all nod our heads, and then we go on about our lives the same as before. And I wonder if that's because we have a tendency to treat sin in our lives in a similar way to the way I treat cleaning in my house. Meaning we're content to do a little straightening up here and there, just enough so it more or less looks okay, but never really taking the time to deal with the deeper issues involved. So we may not look at pornography, but we let our minds entertain all kinds of thoughts that are perilously close. We may not physically respond to a situation with violence, but we find all kinds of other ways to get back at someone who hurt us. We let little lies multiply and grow and spread in an effort to make ourselves look better to other people, all the while excusing them or rationalizing why it's okay. We cut corners in financial dealings and look for ways to work situations for our personal benefit. We gossip, we covet, we look for ways to weasel our way out of commitments and on and on. Nothing ever too egregious, nothing too obvious, but hardly Christ-like. It's like the student who's content to just kind of coast through with a C-, as long as I don't fail the class. That's, that's the bar that I'm setting for myself. And so then we get to sections of Scripture, like right here in, in Deuteronomy 20, concerning the destruction of the Canaanites. And it's like, what on earth is going on? Right? And I, and I get it. These are very challenging passages of Scripture. We, we've talked about these already many times. But at least part of the problem is that we've lost sight of, of the utter holiness of God on the one hand and the horrifying destructive power of sin on the other. I mean, how else can we make sense of verses like this in, in Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and 17? But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. If you pull that out of context, and you compare that to the sort of watered-down, anemic, generally unbiblical God of popular culture, and it's horrifying. But as we've mentioned before, this verse and others like it, it's got nothing to do with ethnic cleansing or sort of religious fanaticism. This is a reflection of God's consistent war against sin from the moment Adam and Eve ate the, 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 the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all the way through the Bible, through the flood, through his punishment on his own people, sending him in, into exile, to Jesus' death on a cross, all the way through to the final battle against all evil and sin in the world at the end of time. Moses tries to emphasize, and this is what he's trying to capture in verse 18, the reason the people are to, to devote the Canaanites to complete destruction. Why? So that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods 
And so you sin against the Lord your God. And this is where the house cleaning analogy completely breaks down. Because honestly, a few dirty dishes, some dust, the odd socks strewn around the room, I mean, who cares? What does it matter? But the lingering sin in your life, that's actually a major problem. Because all sin corrupts. In the moment, it may not seem like that big a deal, but, but like rust on a car, it slowly eats away at our communion with God and left undealt with can eventually lead to a complete collapse of faith. And this passage, I believe, is a reminder that God and sin, they don't mix. It wasn't okay to just have like a little bit of sin remaining in the land. The Canaanites had to be rooted out because that sin was corrupting the place where God intended to dwell among his people. The land where God had promised blessing. The land that was supposed to be a place of rest. How can you have rest when there's sin and idolatry and evil and false religions? And the sin of the Canaanites not only threatened to destroy that rest, but even to consume the Israelites themselves, leading them away from God and into idolatry. How could a loving God allow that to happen to his chosen people? Look, all sin has consequences. We don't like to think about it always. We don't like to talk about it. But it does. Now, praise the Lord that none of us are as bad as we could be. Praise the Lord that he's kept you and I from the worst possible sins. Praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit keeps convicting you of sin and, and keeps you on your spiritual toes. But God and sin, they don't mix. He doesn't look at your heart and, and, and see the lingering sin there and say, yeah, yeah that's good enough, it's fine. God in his grace has covered your sin once and for all through the blood of Jesus Christ. All your debts have been paid. If you're in Christ, you no longer have to fear judgment. But as long as we live in these bodies and in this world, sin will continually press in on you. Like the cold winter air that's sort of finding its way through every little crack and crevice in your homes. And as such, we have to constantly be on guard. So what does that look like? First, stop being content with simply not failing the class. Okay, like a C minus isn't good enough. If sin is as serious as Moses indicates that it is, then our attitude towards fighting it should be just as serious. Nobody in here is without sin. We all, we will never reach perfection this side of heaven. But our attitude should be one that takes sin seriously and seeks to root it out whenever and however we can. Which leads to my second point, which is pray for the Holy Spirit to reveal sin in your life 
so that you can then confess it and repent of it and experience that cleansing work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Be prepared to pull out the chairs so you can look under the table and find all that mess you've been trying to avoid dealing with. Drag it out into the light where Christ can set you free and help you live differently. And finally then, get help from others. You don't have to do all this dirty work alone. You don't have to share everything with everyone. But one of the blessings of community is is mutual support and encouragement that we can give each other in this battle against sin. Right? You don't have to face this alone. Who's someone in your life who can walk with you as you seek to grow in Christ-likeness this year, rooting out sin in your pursuit of God's rest? Well, the book of Hebrews makes it clear that whatever limited rest that we experience this side of heaven, it pales in comparison to the rest that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth. A promised land where where no murder, no war, no sin, no anger, no fear, no idolatry can ever disrupt our relationship with God or with each other ever again. A place where we can live in peace with God, restored, made whole, renewed. But in the meantime, here, today, may I encourage you this week, instead of letting anger ruin your rest, instead fill your homes with grace and forgiveness. And instead of letting fear Rip away that rest. Instead, fill your homes with trust and hope. And instead of letting sin corrupt and corrode God's promise of rest, commit instead to filling your homes with holiness and peace, places of confession and repentance and grace. And may we all experience God's rest in our lives this week as a result. Would you pray with me? Lord, we, even just preaching this, Lord, it makes my heart yearn for that rest, yearn to be rid of this body of sin, yearn to be done with anger and bitterness and strife and jealousy and and fear and anxiety and doubt and, and sin and dirtiness. Lord, I yearn for that cleansing work of your spirit in my life. And I pray that, Lord, you would give us that gift of rest in your presence this week as we seek your help, as we seek your direction, as we seek your leading. In Jesus' name, amen.